Well, good morning, everybody. In case you don't know me, I'm Ron, and uh, I get the privilege of being one of the elders here at the at Calvary. And we've got, man, what an elder team we've got. Um, sweet guys. I mean, yesterday, a couple of them just texted me, independent of each other, told me that they were really praying for me. Uh, anyway, and of course, the apples doesn't fall too far from the tree, and the tree being Pastor Corey. Um, I don't know if uh, God's really blessed this church. He really has. Um, Pastor wanted me to begin just by praying for those folks involved in the, all the different fires and the floods. We need to do that. So let's do that. Lord, uh, collectively now we come to you into your throne room of grace and mercy to find help for our brothers and sisters and, and for those still outside your family, Lord, that are dealing with these these real tragedies. And Lord, again, we, we remember that when this is over today, we will go home to homes, and some of those folks won't. Uh, and they're not, not sure when they'll have a home again. Lord, we ask that you would use this as a time to reveal yourself to them as their loving father, their, their caretaker, their, the one that will take care of them. And Lord, if they don't know you, that they would be drawn to you during this time in some way. We also pray for your special protection, Lord, and anointing on the, those dear men and women that are fight the fires and are, are helping those that are caught up in the floods. Protect them too, Lord. Give them wisdom, uh, your enablement to be your, your hands and feet in this situation, to reach out and to help these folks that, have, that are suffering loss and just, just trauma. Please encourage their hearts and, and take this defeat, as it were, in their lives, this loss, and turn it into a victory for you and, and, uh, and a great gain for them, too, in the long run. They'll be able to look back at this time and see how you stepped in and, and truly, truly saved them. And thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> That's amazing. I don't know how pastor does this every week, three, three, three times. I'm about ready to lose a voice now. So hopefully it won't go. But this morning, it's a little bit different than usual. As you know, uh, we are blessed to have a, a pastor who teaches through the word verse by verse. Uh, so we know the whole counsel of God. But this morning, uh, I had a hard time. I tried for, my wife Paula can t testify, I tried for months to figure out what to speak on a passage. And I just, <laughs> every passage I went to, I tell you, that takes more than one week. Either that or a two-hour sermon, and that, that wouldn't go over too well. So... I'm going to do more of a testimony, kind of a devotional, and I guess in a sense, but a testimony most of all of the loving Heavenly Father in my life. And uh, for 66 years now, since the day I invited him into my life, I've experienced his love, his loyalty, his provision, his protection, his guidance, his comfort. He's done so much for me. And it's hard for me to describe an infinite, indescribable God with my finite mind and understanding. I feel like I'm going down to the ocean's edge and taking a two teaspoon of the ocean water, bringing it back to you this morning for show and tell and to tell you all about the ocean if you've never seen it before. You, see, you get my drift? That's the way I, I kind of feel. Um, you'll remember last week, uh, uh, Gary's excellent sermon, he 
kind of sound the alarm and help us realize that we are engaged in a very intense spiritual battle for the souls and hearts of men and, and women across this land and across our world. And we have an enemy that's very persistent and very strategic, and we had best better be prepared, okay? And get ready for the fight, as it were, and to be able to stand, not only to keep ourselves standing, but most of all, to be able to rescue those who are dying without Jesus. As you all know, I am no jet fighter pilot. I thought to myself, I was sitting there last week, how can I follow <laughs> follow Gary? <laughs> but the Lord uses all of us, right? Uh, the last 10 and a half years of my life, I was a pilot. Uh, not my, my transporter was yellow colored. And it had flashing red lights on the front and the back that came on whenever I let people come on board. Um, I had no injection seat in my, in my cockpit, as it were, but I sure could have used a few for some passengers I had <laughs> as I was traveling. This morning, I, I want us to move from the air and the jets down to the ground level, down to the, the troops on the ground. And I want to suggest a, a kind of a, a well, I, I want to suggest that there are two basic um, items that we need to be carrying as we go into battle. Um, I think that a, as a ground troop person, we need to travel very lightly. But, but what we do have, they need, to, they need to be the essentials. And with that said, I want to suggest that we are to carry two, two small things over our heart. And one is related to what the American soldiers clear back in the Civil War days began carrying when they went into war against the enemy. And you know what that was that they carried over their heart oftentimes? The New Testament. In fact, there are stories about some New Testaments that have saved some young men's lives with bullets stuck in them. But the, the, the book I'm suggesting is even more powerful than that, actually. Um, so, with that said, there's one other thing that the soldier carried as he went into war, and they didn't all do this, but they were given the choice. They would carry a portrait, a portrait of a loved one. Because, you see, if you could be reminded of why you're fighting and who you're fighting for, and also that would also give you the motivation to want to get home alive. We had the same two items to carry in this war. We have a book and a portrait. Um, let me begin with the portrait or the picture. Now, we all carry a picture. We may not realize it, but we do. An image of God over our hearts and minds. Our pictures are all different because they're in all different stages of development. Proverbs 4.18 says that the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. It shines brighter and brighter. Our concept of God is, is forever changing, either for the better or for the worse. Okay? Some see God today as distant and un uninvolved, while others see him up close and very involved. Some see him as stern and soft. Uh, others see him uh, very approachable, very empathetic and understanding. Um, 
It all began for me, my portrait, on the morning of May 27th, 1957. And I still remember it like it was yesterday. I walked out of a bedroom where my daddy had spent the last few weeks preparing to die. And mom had arranged for me to go to another house nearby to play with the children. But before leaving that room that morning, I'd gone over to my daddy's bed. He was lying there, and he must have been in intense pain from the stomach cancer that was slowly eating him alive. And he put his little frail arm around my little frame body, and he kissed me goodbye. And he said to me, son, I'll see you in heaven someday. A few hours later, while I was play, uh, playing, I imagined Daddy also kissed Mommy goodbye and went home to Jesus. And as I've looked back on what I call that defining moment in my life, I have come to realize that that little seven-year-old boy who walked out of that bedroom, he was feeling very unprotected. He was feeling vulnerable. He was feeling in conflict and confused. He was sad and, most of all, very lonely feeling. And those impressions and feelings from that traumatic event would shape the picture that I carried of God for many years. And even to this day, can have an influence. That protective role, that, that model role of a man that only a dad can, can fulfill, the pillar of strength for the family, which helps a little child feel safe, that would always be missing at our dinner table. What would happen to my widow, mom, and myself? You look at the statistics as far as what happens to children growing up in, in homes without dads, and they pretty bleak. And I don't want to bore you with all that this morning. Just trust me, it's economically, socially, even physically, it's sometimes not very good. But I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. And that is that within a year following my earthly father's death, God Almighty stepped up and became my loving and my loyal and my protecting and providing Heavenly Father. The Almighty God who created you and me was watching over me that morning in 1957. And I did not walk out of that bedroom all alone. He would send the Holy Spirit to bring me to himself shortly after. And I believe in some part an answer to my daddy's prayers for me as he lay on his dying deathbed. I've tried to put myself in his shoes at times. What would it be like knowing that I'm going to leave a single mother and a little seven-year-old boy in this world? <laughs> you can bet he did quite a bit of praying, and God answered. I want you to just turn to Psalm 68. I think I've got the two verses up here. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6, because I, I, I testified to, to, this morning to the truth of this scripture. Listen to what David declared about God. He said, Father to the fatherless and defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. I mean, God dwells up high. He's holy, totally removed. And yet he comes down and becomes the father to the fatherless. He becomes what is needed in the situation. And he becomes 
a defender of the widow, those that are, those that are vulnerable. This is God. And he says, God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. And God has done every one of these things in my life. God became my father. I remember often I would go to him for advice when normally you would go to an earthly father. I didn't have one. I remember him correcting me, and he still does. <laughs> Loving, firm discipline. There's no getting around when God wants to make a point in your life. I remember him taking me to the woodshed at times and really laying it on me and then walking away and letting me think about what I had done. I remember how he let me at times make my own mistakes, but he wouldn't let me go too far to where it would become destructive, but it was a learning process. And then when I had my own family, he was there to teach me how to be a husband. I had no idea what it was to be a husband. He taught me. Or what it was to be a father. Same thing. And he was always backing me up like a good dad does. I didn't have one, but he was there backing me up. And he also enabled me to put bread on the table. Faithfully. As a pastor of a young, struggling church at times, that was miraculous. But we never went without. Never. Defender of widows, David says. And God became my mom's protector and provider like you would not believe. We never went without a meal or a need being met. In fact, I was able to attend an uh, excellent Christian university at the time and be impacted by so many godly men and women that ended, ended, up, ended up impacting my life and shaped me into the person I am today. And I was able to do this because of my own, my mother's financial help and help that she was able to give to me <laughs> under a little meager income of being a junior high teacher, middle school teacher. God provided for my mother and she died owing no debt. He's the defender of the widow. In fact, she left me some substantial funds for my first down payment on our house, my first house says he places the lonely in families. Yes, mom and I at times were very lonely. We were. Yet God always places in a good church family where we were able to develop good friends that would last a lifetime. And when God gave me my own first of two wonderful wives that I have, I have to figure out how to say that. <laughs> he also gave me a house filled with children four kids, as well as an entire church family that I was able to be involved in and shepherd. Boy, did I have a family. He placed me in a family. So what shapes and forms our various images of God? As I've shared, life circumstances definitely do that. And depending on how we respond to them, they can either you know, mar our image or enhance it. But there's another influence that, even, that, that is even stronger than life circumstances in shaping the view we have of God. And that is the word of life, God's word, the book that we carry over our hearts, that we choose to carry. Question, and I want you to think about this. I'm going to ask it more than once. 
Do we know how much we need the Word of God over our hearts and minds? Do we really know how much? It amazes me that the Almighty God who created this world and everything in it and who holds it all together knew that his only defense against the temptations of Satan was the Word of God. Remember, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, if you read that area, you'll see that Satan comes to Jesus at his most vulnerable time, and he tempts him in three different ways. And Jesus responds to his, temp to his temptations. And notice what he did not do. Jesus did not debate Satan. Now, you know what? He created Satan. You know what? I think if they'd had a debate, I think Jesus would have beat him hands down. But he didn't do that. Because he knows something we sometimes forget, how powerful the Word of God is. He also didn't just walk away, ignore it. But what did he do? We read the same phrase. He said to Satan, the scriptures say, or it is written. The scriptures say, and it is written. And again, I say to you, this, you know, this is what the scriptures say. All three scriptures that Jesus quotes to Satan in that situation were from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Two of them are from chapter 6, and one is from chapter 8. Hypothetically, could the Holy Spirit have been preparing Jesus for this confrontation by leading him to have been meditating on those scriptures in Deuteronomy prior to this time? They were fresh in his mind? Have no idea. However, we can't deny the power of God's word in standing against the onslaught of Satan, as well as this world system that he runs, and our own flesh that is so easily enticed by both the things that he runs. Question, do we really know how dependent we are upon God's word for the battles we face? The last piece of armor, remember, that Paul mentions in the book of Ephesians that we're to put on and to deal with this spiritual battle we're in is what? What's the last piece of armor? Is the word of God, Ephesians 6, 17, the last part of that verse, and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I got a question. How can this Bible we have, or the electronic device you have, become a sword to resist your enemy's attacks? What gives this word a sharp edge? Well, part of the answer is found in the Greek word used for word in this passage, and it's the word R-H-E-M-A, rhema. I'm probably mispronouncing it, but rhema, okay? Keep that in mind. There are two primary Greek words that describe Scripture and are both translated word, okay, in the New Testament. The first is logos, which you probably are familiar with. It refers principally to the totally inspired word of God and to Jesus, the living logos. In John 1, when it is used, when John says, in the beginning, he's referring to Jesus, in the beginning, the word already existed. The Word, or the Rhema, was with God. I'm sorry, the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God, three times. The second word is Rhema, and this word refers to a spoken word, an utterance. Rhema is the, now catch this, Rhema is the portion of Scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to our attention with application to a current situation or need for direction. 
I'll repeat that. Rhema is the portion of scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to our attention with application to our current situation right now or need for direction. Let me give you an illustration. Back in 2008, I was sitting at my church desk office and I came across Psalm 32, verse 8 in my daily reading. I had previous months, I had made the decision to step down from full-time ministry, which I think was probably the hardest decision I ever had to make. And the Lord knew I needed my faith strengthened and, he, and, he, and I needed to be encouraged because I didn't know what the dickens I was going to do. That's what faith usually is, right? Faith is walking in the dark and not the light because you choose to walk with him in the dark than walk alone in the light, don't you? Or do you? I don't know about you, but I don't like walking in the dark. You walk in the dark, you can bump into things, you can fall down, you can trip. But that's the only way I figured out that we walk by faith. Because the minute I open my eyes up and have light, I'm not, somehow I'm not walking with Jesus. You think about that a little bit, okay? But anyway, side point. Um, here's what Psalm 32 8 says I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. Wow, did that encourage me? All of a sudden, it became very personal to me. I will guide you, Ron, along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. I got your back. That strengthened me so. You see, at that point, the Logos of God became the Rima of God. Friends, the, the Rima will never contradict the Logos of God, but it will bring it alive and apply it to where you are right now, personally and practically. Guaranteed. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 75, this word rhema is also used. It's used in the context where Peter had just denied his Lord three times. And then he hears a rooster crow. Remember that? And then Matthew records for us what Peter was thinking. And I quote, Suddenly Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. Now, I want to draw your attention to the word words there in my translation or your word. Suddenly, Jesus' word flashed. Word. That's the word rhema. It's his spoken word. Peter hears Jesus speaking to him inside directly when that happens. And in this situation, rhema brings conviction. In Matthew 4, 4, when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy, to resist Satan's temptation to turn some stones into bread. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy, would you? With me? Deuteronomy chapter 8. And, and I want you to see this verse in context. Jesus, when he quotes the scripture to Satan, by the way, it's in context. All right? The Satan quotes scripture to him later on, if you remember, and he quotes it way out of context. But Jesus didn't do that. And we shouldn't either. But Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is giving his farewell sermon uh, to the people of Israel. 
uh, he'll be dying for too long and they'll be, and Joshua's going to take over. But he's reviewing Israel's history with them the past 40 years and what God has done for them and how disobedient their, their previous parents were. And don't you guys repeat this, you know, you learn from them, be obedient. But notice, I'll start reading in verse 2, Deuteronomy 8. Remember how the Lord your God led you through the wilderness for these 40 years, humbling you, humbling you. <laughs> That's where he starts with all of us. And testing you to prove your character. He does the humbling and the testing, not just to make us feel crummy or helpless, but to really change us into the image of Christ. And to find out whether or not you would obey his commands. That's what a true follower of Jesus does. He learns to obey regardless. Yes, he humbled you by letting you go hungry. And maybe some here this morning, some of us are hungry not necessarily for food, but maybe recognition. Maybe we're hungry for a different place in life. Maybe we're hungry, whatever it is. But the point is we can't get to it ourselves, so we have to depend upon God, right? He humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with manna. Remember the manna they got? They got the special manna from heaven every single morning. They had to walk out and get it, but it was there for the taking. They couldn't take any extra for tomorrow or it would stink and draw maggots, right? So just one day at a time. That was an object lesson, he's saying. It was a food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of who? The Lord. Now, when Jesus quotes this in Matthew 4, 4, Jesus says, people do not live by bread alone, but by every rhema, spoken word, that comes from the mouth of God. Do we realize and understand how dependent we are upon hearing the spoken word of God to our hearts daily? It's our nourishment, it's our, it's our, it feeds our soul, it keeps us alive, revives us at times. When our heart becomes dead and broken, it's his spoken word that brings it alive. Uh, turn to Psalm chapter 1. I'm, I always say Psalm 1. Psalm 1, sorry, not chapter. Well, yeah, it is chapter. Psalm 1, the first two or three verses. Because I want you to see what we can our part in this process of helping the Holy Spirit, and we can help him, we can work with him, and, and changing the Logos of God, the book that's in our hands, into a, a, a sharp sword that can speak and revive us and, and deal with the enemy. Notice Psalm, chapter, Psalm 1, uh, verse 1. The author of Psalm 1 is unknown, except it's the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or stand around with sinners or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord. Now, the law of the Lord then would have been the first five books, the Old Testament. They delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on, meditating on it. There's the word I want you to focus on, day and night. So it's this meditation for this particular person who who... Who, who is <laughs> delights in, in, in the law of the Lord, he, he, his lifestyle is to meditate, okay, on it day and night. 
And notice what happens because of that. They are like trees planted. Let that sink in. When I think of a tree planted, I think of a tree that's got deep roots. It's stable. It's strong. It's going to remain standing no matter what happens. And the reason it's planted by what? Some, a stream of living water that just, it's always, it's always fresh water there. Which reminds you of some other water, right? That flows, it's available for us. The Holy Spirit, right? So as we meditate, it's like our roots are, are drawing strength, excuse me, drawing strength from the Holy Spirit. Planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Each season. Not just the good times in your life, but the bad times. The times when you feel like you just have nothing to give. Or you're just, uh, just in the way. And other times you feel like, oh yeah, God's using me. Man, this is cool. But you don't always feel that way, right? But this says, if you, as long as you're in the Word, you're going to be fruitful. You may not see it or think it or feel it, but you are. In every season, their leaves never wither. Now, why do leaves wither? There's a dying process, right? They're, they're, they're being cut off from the flow. But this kind of tree, you, that's not going to happen in your life. Now, it will happen on the outside. I know. There's parts of me that definitely are dying. They're not like they used to be. But on the inside, you see, the inside of me, which is real me, it's, it's fully alive. I'm, I'm fully alive, regardless how old I get. All right? Leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. And I, there's true prosperity, and I don't want to go into that at this point. But anyway, I want you to, the word meditate, to me, is an interesting word because it has a number of ideas. It's, it has the idea of pondering something. Uh, before you go out and make a purchase, don't quite often, don't you ponder that decision? You'd maybe do your research and whatever, and you think about it, and you think about it, and you think about it, right? That's the idea of meditating. On scripture, you're pondering it. It has the idea of imagining. What could this possibly mean in this context? Or I wonder, how would it be if, if, if I acted this way in response to it? You, know, you, you, you start imagining ways that you can kind of work this out in your life. It also means to speak to oneself. Now, I think all of us are pretty good at that, aren't we? In fact, sometimes that gets us in trouble, right? Yeah. But just think if we're speaking to ourselves, speaking scripture to ourselves. And it also has the idea of remembering anything. You cannot meditate without remembering. And I can hear some of you saying, okay, there's my problem, Rama. I can't remember anything. Any of you relate to me? I'm having a harder and harder time remembering names. I see some of you, and I, and I know your face, and you know mine, and I just, can't, I just sit there and smile. And I, oh, I feel so embarrassed. But it's getting, it's, it's getting worse with age. It's a bummer. <laughs> but you know what? What's the key to, to remembering? It's repetition, isn't it? Because there are certain things that I have not forgotten. My social security number, I could rattle, rattle it off to you. Because I repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. I have to write it down, write it down. You know, or my, or, you know, my, my address, Lord willing. Uh, hopefully I'll never forget my address, but it's, I write it down, right? Psalm 119.11, the psalmist declares, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The idea of, of hidden is to, is to treasure and to store up. I'm putting it here in my heart for future use. I'm storing it up. I'm treasuring it that I might not sin against you, Lord, that I might stay in right relationship with you. Now, this is my point. There have been times in my life 
when the enemy has been allowed to slam me on the concrete, when the Lord has allowed the enemy to slam me down on the concrete, and I have been down for the count, I mean mentally, emotionally, physically, I have not been able to read or concentrate on God's word at all, let alone hear it spoken to me by others. I've been in those situations. I've been so numb. So numb. And it's been at those times that the Lord has come to me. Maybe it's been in a hospital bed as I'm waiting for a diagnosis. Maybe it's been in the mortuary where I'm having to make decisions over my first wife's remains. You've all had a situation like that where I know you want to stay close to the Lord, but it's just, it's just really hard. You can't connect. But it's been at those times that the Lord has come to me and he's picked me up with his powerful, strong arms and whispered to my soul words of hope and life that revived me, redirected me, or just jump-started, like I said earlier, my dead and broken hearts. And he did it through the scriptures that I had previously been reflecting on, memorizing over the years, meditating on. They had been stored up for such a time as that. And I want to just share with you, oops, my time is almost, that clock just goes faster during each service. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's saying amen over here, pastors. <laughs> oh, got it. Okay, just a few more minutes. Okay. I want to share with you just a few memory verses, not to show off. I have spent literally 25 or 30 years learning verses. And the way I pick them is in my quiet time, I'm reading along, and you know, and some verse stands out at me. I think, I don't want to forget this. So I write it down on a piece of, or on a card or whatever I have. And my goal has not been quantity of verses. It's quality. I want to be able to really, because that word has spoken to me, and I, and I don't want to forget it, and I want God to continue to speak to me through that particular word. Okay? And I just randomly picked some, some verses here. 1 Corinthians 1.8. I love this. Paul is talking to a pretty carnal church. Remember Corinth? It had some issues. But Paul says this. He, and he's referring to God the Father, he will keep you strong right up to the end. And he will keep you free from all blame on the great day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. I have loved that passage. At times when the enemy just gets in and condemns me, accuses me, this scripture just makes him kind of just shut down and go away because I know God, my Father, is going to keep me free from all blame when Jesus Christ comes back. He's the one in charge. And sometimes if we see... You know, God is a stern, harsh, you know, you know, make you pay. See, this is the truth. That's his heart. That's his heart. Psalm 144, verse 2. He, Father God, is my loving ally and my fortress, my tower of safety, my deliverer. He stands before me as a shield, and I take refuge in him. I love that psalm. He is my loving ally. How many people go to war <laughs> without an ally? It's ridiculous. World War II would not have been won by the Westerns, by us folks, without being allies. 
how much greater can we expect to go against war in, in, a, in a spiritual battle and not have our ally, allies with it? And who is it? It's God Almighty. He is my loving ally and my fortress. The idea of fortress there is a <clears throat> high, up, protected place, away from the enemy. And you can see the enemy good, too, when you're, when you're doing this. He's my loving ally, my fortress, my tower of safety. Oh, man. It's so great to, to be able to get into a big, powerful castle that's impenetrable by the enemy. That's who God is. My tower of safety. My, and then he says, my, my deliverer. He's going to deliver me through this. And then at the end, he stands before me as a shield. I love that word picture. He stands in front and takes it when the enemy comes at me. He's my shield. He stands before me as a shield, and I take refuge in him. I love that psalm. Just one more. Let's see here. Um, actually, this one is a different one. <clears throat> John 14, 3. Jesus is talking to his disciples, preparing them for his departure. He says, when everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will be with me wherever I am. And when my first wife passed away, that scripture meant so much to me because everything was ready. And Jesus came and got his daughter. You know, at times we may not like his sovereign, powerful hand, but if we, if we keep looking in faith long enough, we'll see how full of love his sovereign hand is. But when everything is ready, and that's true of every single one of us in here, when, if we know Jesus, when everything is ready, he will come and get you. And why? So that you can be with him forever. That's his heart. He wants nothing else but to just to spend eternity with you. <clears throat> I trust that your picture that you're carrying around to the Father is a loving, loving, heavenly Father who, who will do anything to bring you home with himself. Oh, I pray that that's the picture you have. And if it's not that way, that it will become that way more and more. And the way it becomes that way more and more is by beginning to really meditate on his scripture and let that scripture clarify your image because the two go together, you see. My picture has gotten better over the past 66 years than it was because of the word of God shining on it and it clarifies it more and more. And the more that I have a, a better picture of the Father, guess what? The more I want to spend time listening to his word as well. It's a, it's a positive cycle. One helps the other. Does that make sense? All right. You guys are so cool. <laughs> Just <laughs> let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your church here at Calvary Rathom. I thank you. I just, I just see so many of your children. They're just sitting at your feet, and, they, and they're just wanting to wait and just to hear from you. What, what do I do next, Father? What do I do next, Master? Oh, Lord, may that never change here in this church. May we always be your faithful servants and sons and daughters. And I continue to ask you that just like you were with me in that room, you walked out of that room with me in 1957, and I've never been the same since. And I ask you that there wouldn't be a person here this morning either that would walk out of this place 
not knowing deep, deep in our heart that you are walking with them and you have their back. Help them to know that in Jesus' name. Amen.